Hello and welcome to Final Games, the podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and you're listening to the 12th episode of the show. I'm very excited this week as the guest I have joining me to get lost in a deserted place is one of the most talked about game designers in the industry at the moment. She's a master's graduate from NYU Engineering and before making a living from video games, had a previous role at Kickstarter, working on their web app and data analytics. At the end of last year, she released the game Sybil with the fantastically named studio Star Made Games. Sybil is a game about love, sex, and that crazy world we call the internet. It's actually based on my guest's first relationship that developed online with a person she played Final Fantasy XI with. I've actually also been told that her avatar in Final Fantasy XI at the time was actually named Sybil. Hopefully she can confirm this for me later. Sybil is by no means my guest's first foray into game development, and she's been designing and developing games at Game Jams and in her spare time for years. Now she makes games for a living as a designer at Fulbright, developers of the hit title Gone Home. She's now working on the studio's next game, Tacoma. She's an incredible voice in the industry and has been included on both Forbes' most influential developers list in 2015 and their top 30 under 30 in video games this year. My guest today is the poetry writing, award-winning, exceptional game designer, Nina Freeman. Hello, Nina. Hello. Thank you for the very nice intro. (laughs) No problem. How are you today? Uh, Pretty good. Um, just hanging out and suffering through allergy season, but holding in there somehow, <laughs> or hanging in there. <laughs> where where in America are you? Is... Uh, I'm in Oregon, um, specifically in Portland, Oregon. Is the is the allergies really bad? Because I know like yeah. America has like various areas that have really bad pollen count and stuff like that is that yeah i'm just like allergic to so many things and there's so many flowers here and it's beautiful and i love it but when spring hits my body just shuts down (laughs) because of all the pollen just hide Uh, but but it's it's good because it's gorgeous i'm looking at my window right now at tons of flowers which is definitely That's fine, because this is the perfect uh, excuse then to get lost in the deserted place and play video games for the rest of your life. Yes, that's true. (laughs) So first question I wanted to ask you basically was, what made you want to be a game designer? How did you get started? I think it's the most simplest and probably the most oftenly asked question to people like yourself, but people are so interested to know how people get started. So how did you get started wanting to be a game designer? I started making games about three or four years ago now, I think. Um, I didn't always think I was going to be a game designer. I, for a while, I thought I was going to be an actress and I started college as a theater major. And then I quickly switched over to um, English literature and studied poetry uh, in my undergraduate career. And during that time, I worked a, a bit in the poetry scene in New York City um, at places like the Poetry Project and stuff. And that okay. that was like, I did that for a long time. Um, and I thought I was going to continue to be a poet and maybe a professor, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> it didn't end up, I don't know, I was like working at day jobs that weren't poetry related. And I was doing all these other things just to get by in New York City, which is a very expensive city. Um, and during that time, I also got really sick and I was kind of dabbling in grad school. So I had all this stuff going on. Um, and... I was kind of like, do I really want to like continue like this? Like maybe I'm not actually doing what I want to be doing um, in pursuing like literature, grad school and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and at that point I 
met some people in New York who were making games and became friends with them and started seeing them making games and was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, maybe I'll try this and see where it takes me. Yeah. Uh, so I started going to game jams with them and participating more in the local scene there. And that is how I started making games. Was it just sort of a natural progression, uh, being able to take your poetry and your creative sort of artistic vision with that and then put it into video games? Yeah, I think ultimately my interest has always been in storytelling, whether it was when I was doing theater, you know, telling a story through acting yeah. or um, in poetry. Um, in poetry, that was when I sort of started doing vignette writing. And I've always really had a strong interest in character focused work. Okay. So um, both vignette and character focused work and vignette lends itself well to character focused stuff. Um, so, you know, that interest has sort of followed me throughout whatever medium I was interested in at the time. Yeah. So it, yeah, it kind of naturally came through, um, in the games work I was doing right from the start. Um, I've always been interested in the more character focused, uh, very narrative heavy, uh, games and, uh, also poetry and theater and that kind of thing. Okay. So then uh, talking about character, you know development and that kind of thing and uh telling a narrative story about a character you released sybil last year and the character is yourself um yes. <laughs> i guess that's a very easy story to tell because you know it inside out <laughs> yeah so what was it's the... easy in some ways and hard in others <laughs> <laughs> so what was the reaction to sybil then last year and how how has it been like almost throwing something so intimately about yourself out freely onto the internet for people to play I've had a lot of practice doing personal work in the past. Like in when I was doing poetry, uh, Charles North was my, I guess, professor and mentor. Okay. So I feel like mostly everything I know about writing, I learned from him and a few other people in my life. Um, and his focus was really on, he always told us, write what you know. Um, and he also showed us a lot of poets work who, who did write personal work, but in poetry, you know, it wasn't like people were writing explicitly personal poetry. It's just that a lot of these poets were drawing from their own lives because yeah. ordinary life is interesting. And when I was doing that, it wasn't so much a focus as it was just another source of material and inspiration for writing. Um, so it's been kind of funny coming into games where personal games are like such a thing because I never thought of personal work as such a thing before. Okay. And I've been doing it for a very long time. So it doesn't, you know, I... I a lot of people assume that it must be really scary to put myself out there in that way. And it is in some ways, but I've practiced it a lot and practice makes perfect. So <laughs> I think I've just, <laughs> I know how to, how to do it right for myself. So it was just a sort of, I'm already doing this kind of thing. I might as I might as well just continue. It's... Well, my my interest is in telling stories about ordinary life and I'm yeah. an ordinary person. So drawing from my own life is, you know, is one way I can pursue that interest. And I've done that quite a bit. Um, so it's just a piece of that. Um, and it was, uh, Sybil was very well received, uh, which was very exciting. Yeah. It um, seems to have been know, extremely well received. Yeah. Yeah. We, we launched it and it got lots of coverage and, you know, it, it took a lot of work. You know, I was going out and going to all the events and talking yeah. about it, showing it to people, et cetera. So it wasn't, you know, it didn't necessarily come out of nowhere, um, but it certainly su surprised me at how many people connected with it. <laughs> I got tons and tons of emails from people who were 
wanting to reach out to me to say like, oh, I had a similar experience or I know someone who also had an online relationship or like, oh, this reminded me of one of my other relationships, not necessarily online, but, you know, just that kind of relationship with a person. Um, so, yeah, and then we won the Nuovo Award at the yeah. IGF uh, last month, I think it was. So that was really exciting. Um, so it's been super positive, which is is really good. Yeah, it sounds really, really good. But So now you're working full-time as a designer at uh, Steve Gaynor's studio, uh, Fulbright. So you're working now on Tacoma. What's it been like moving from making games where you have com- almost complete com- creative freedom to now working with a team uh, in a studio where you have to sort of fight for your ideas and that kind of thing? Um, it At Fulbright, yeah, so it's been interesting. I actually started at Fulbright right when I finished grad school and while I was still working on Sybil. Okay. So that was like quite a whirlwind of a time. Um, and I was lucky that... I was able to finish Sybil while I was still, uh, while I started at Fulbright and stuff. Um, So I've been making a lot of games, (laughs) Um, but being at Fulbright is, I mean, it's really awesome. Like, you know, Steve and Carla are the co-founders and they're both incredibly talented um, and really, really good mentors. Um, And Steve had mentored me quite a bit on Sybil even before I started working at Fulbright. So they've been in that role. Like they've, been mentors to me in in really positive ways. Fantastic. Um, and it's such a small studio that there's a lot of back and forth between everyone. So everyone is able to have input, which is really, you know, empowering. It's nice to feel like you're at a studio where your voice can be heard and where yeah. you can sort of have your <clears throat> your uh, you can feel your handprint in the game and sort of see that, um, which is really nice. So. Yeah, it's super great. I can't talk in too much specificity about Tacoma itself, but yes. it's going to be really <laughs> I won't. I won't. <laughs> yeah, We're it's not that people, kind of show. <laughs> for people who don't know, it's it's like a it's a story focused exploration game about uh, a crew on a space station called Tacoma, and it's sort of about them and that space station and what's going on there. Um, and I'm one of the level designers, so uh, yeah, it's really cool to be working on it. That's awesome. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Steve Gaynor, who also co-founded Fulbright, he uh, made a podcast called Tone Control. And Tone Control is actually one of the inspirations from my own show, this show as well, the sort of conversation with people who work in the games industry about the games that inspired them and their lives with games and that kind of thing. So if you do see Steve in the office, please tell him thank you. <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, that's a cool podcast. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to move on to your games now. And uh, you have a very interesting list. And it includes some uh, quite new games as well, games that only came out last year. So it's going to be really interesting to talk to those. So... Let's listen to some music and dive right into the first game, which I think is going to be one of the more important games to talk about. So let's listen to some music. Thank you. 
the first game on your list today is developed originally by Square and then Square Enix, and it was uh, released originally for the PlayStation 2 in May of 2002 for Japan, and then two years later in North America, it received releases for the PC and the Xbox 360, and it's the first MMO for the Final Fantasy series, and it's set in the world of Vanadiel. You can still play it today if you have the PC version, but last week... Both the PlayStation 2 and Xbox 360 servers have closed down. Uh, it plays a big part in the inspiration for Sybil, I think. And uh, it's Final Fantasy XI. Yes. And yes, it does. Uh, Sybil obviously drew a lot from that because um, the story is based on stuff that happened to me while I was playing that game. So yeah. heavily influenced. <laughs> <laughs> is it, it, it? Was it a game that not only inspired you or is it just coincidental that that happens to be the game you were playing at that time um i think it's more coincidental uh well i guess it's probably more complicated than that but ultimately sybil is more focused on the relationship between the two people yeah um and the game and the mmo serves as context for that and you know how how they met what that means and how they are able to communicate with each other within that context. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the MMO depicted in Sybil is very minimal compared yes. to the actual Final Fantasy XI. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot less about that game and a lot more about the relationship. So was Final Fantasy XI still very important at that time? Um, obviously, you were building a relationship around playing this game. Was it more a vessel to speak to this person or and speak to your friends that you play with or did you really enjoy the game as well yeah so i played final fantasy 11 for from when i was 14 so i i guess that's actually the year it came out yes in its states 2004 um, yeah yeah until i was 19 so it's like a pretty long time oh wow yes um, which is why i put it on this list because i'm like well i played it for that long so. <laughs> um so yeah, I obviously played it for a long time and enjoyed it, uh, but I don't, I didn't enjoy it necessarily for the gameplay itself. I think that I played it so, that long, like I enjoyed the gameplay, but I don't think I stayed engaged with it for that many years because of the gameplay itself. Yeah. I think that I kept playing it because of the social life that I had within that game and because of the way that it allowed me to connect with and communicate with other people, which was really important to me you know, at that age where I was in high school or starting college. And that's obviously a very socially volatile time of one's life. Yes, very, um, very, very yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> Final Fantasy Online felt like one of my social lives. Um, you know, I had, I wasn't a total shut-in. Like, I did a lot at school. Like, I wasn't an MMO addict on the level of, like, only really doing that and not not going outside of it. Um, I managed to kind of like have these two parallel lives, which is kind of weird. So were they like friends that were in other states that you couldn't hang out with and that kind of thing that you made through Final Fantasy XI? Or were they friends that you went to school with that you then would hang out with, but then also play Final Fantasy XI with? I started playing Final Fantasy XI because two of my best friends, Brittany and Melanie, got it and invited me over to play it with them because they yeah. were really excited about it. Um, so I started playing because of them, um, but I didn't know how to get on the same server as them. And <laughs> I was like too impatient to figure it out. So I just started a character and I, I didn't think I was going to like end up playing it for so long. So I was like, oh, it's fine. I'll like try it out. 
Um, so we ended up being on separate servers, so we didn't play together, but we definitely like talked about it a lot and all okay. of us played for a very long time. Uh, but most of the real like social life I had in that game was just people I met there and many of which I did end up meeting later um, in person when I moved to New York. Um, I played this a lot of, uh, for a lot of high school, which is when I was in Massachusetts, which is where my family lives. Okay. Um, and then a lot of the people I played with were in New York, which is where I went to college. So I met up with them. So for me, it was a mix of people who I had met only ever in the game. And then people who I had met in the game that I then met up with in real life in New York. <laughs> so are you still friends with those people today then that those sort of relationships have built from Final Fantasy XI into being real proper friendships in the real world? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I had real like friendships with these people, even if I never met them. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I know what you're saying on that. Yeah, part. and not even if I didn't end up meeting them, um, there are still people uh, that, I mean, those relationships I had when I was playing that were very real. Um, and then, you know, I have kept in touch with a couple people, not, not a ton. Um, okay. it was funny to really Sybil cause a bunch of them that I hadn't talked to in a long time got in touch with me cause they, you know, came across the game. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, my handle Sybil is the real handle I used when I played. So it was like pretty easy to recognize. Um, and that it was is cool. such a good um easy thing because sybil is such a nice name for a game as well i think it's Thanks. very it yeah, rolls like off the tongue very <laughs> easily so uh, how did you come up with the username when you were playing final fantasy then uh so the name is and for people who don't know i always spell it because no one ever knows how to spell it because it's spelled in so many different ways but i spell it c-i-b-e-l-e -E. yeah um and i got that name because there was this girl who I did theater with that was a couple years older than me in high school. And I admired her a whole bunch and wanted to be just like her. And her AIM username had the word Sybil in it. So I decided when I made my uh, Final Fantasy character that I would use that name because I thought <laughs> she was so cool. <laughs> I'm just going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I used it and I asked her how she pronounced it, and she said Sybil, and I also took the spelling, so it was all inspired by that, uh, <laughs> that girl that I really liked. When Does I she know it. about the game? And uh... I don't think so. I mean, we're friends on Facebook, so she might. Um, that would be funny. I, should, <laughs> I haven't talked to her in years, so I'm not sure, but she might. <laughs> Fair enough. So what about Final Fantasy XIV, then? Have you... Obviously, the first try of that game from Square Enix was abysmal and not very well received. And then they did the whole uh, Realm Reborn and then they created this new MMO and it's been very well received. And there is a huge community behind that game. Have you played Final Fantasy XIV? Was it something you were excited about because of Eleven? Yeah, it came out after... Well, actually, it was interesting. It got announced um, the first sort of sequel i guess that was 14 um got announced right when i was deciding to quit 11 okay. <laughs> uh, and i was pretty mad because you know you can sell your avatars um and before that sequel was announced my character was worth a lot um and then right as i was about to sell it they announced that sequel and the value of all of avatars went down a lot because you know, <laughs> they thought people would move over to this new game uh, so I still got a lot of money for my avatar. I sold it, but not as much as I could have if I'd sold it. Like, oh, no. <laughs> so I was pretty upset. Um, but 
it worked out. Uh, and I did try, I've tried all the new Final Fantasy Onlines. Um, and I haven't ever like committed to any of them though. I've just tried all of them. Like I've beta tested all of them. Um, and yeah. that has always been fun. I think the new one is definitely super fun. I love the style and all of the life that the world has. I think yeah. that the character design is still really strong. And I love seeing everyone post their funny videos and pictures and screenshots and stuff. There's just a lot of life in that game and it's it's pretty exciting. And I've heard the quests are really good and cute. Um, so it seems good. I haven't played them enough to really have a full uh, a full idea of how I feel about them though. Okay, so we're not seeing any Sybil 2 based around Final Fantasy XIV then? No. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously for the purpose of the show, I'm sorry, but you're being cast away to a deserted place that we will talk about in a bit. Um, <laughs> Are you okay with playing Final Fantasy XI on PC for the rest of your days? Yeah, I mean, as long as I have an internet connection. <laughs> okay, so the rules of the show in okay. terms of this, because yeah. obviously you and you could use an internet connection for a, a way of getting off this deserted place, and and we can't we can't have that. So you have to stay there. So you could use an internet connection for the purpose of an MMO or an online game like a MOBA, but you're not able to chat with people because otherwise you can ask sos and please come find me so are you still okay playing the quests and the game and that kind of thing maybe without the ability to chat to people yeah i think so the way i structured my list was around the idea of needing sort of different things fulfilled so okay the mmo fulfills sort of the social need to feel like there's someone else around other people uh, and I don't are running think, around, like, even if you chat. can't talk to them as well. Yeah, I don't think text chat necessarily is a requirement for that. Like okay. seeing someone else, knowing that someone else is behind something moving around on the screen is meaningful enough and there's plenty of emotes, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, so that's that's why I put this one on the list because I think in general for me, like MMOs are always more about the social experience than the gameplay yeah. experience. And okay. I think that that's really valuable. And if I had to pick you know, seven games to talk about in this context, like one of them would definitely need to be an MMO because I think MMOs excel at that um, beyond uh, many other games. So before we move on to your next game, um, is there anything from Final Fantasy XI in terms of like a social aspect that you have drawn from for your own games? Something that you thought they've absolutely nailed this. I need to sort of build upon what they have in terms of social uh, construct maybe. I'm not certain how purposeful a lot of this stuff is, but like, for example, one of the things that I find interesting about Final Fantasy Online and these other MMOs where you're playing with other players um, with avatars is that, you know, you know, you're playing with this person. For me, like I was often on uh, Ventrilo or whatever, chatting with them over voice. Yeah. Um, And a lot of the time you're just playing and you're like leveling up or grinding or whatever, and you're talking about other stuff and you're not actually talking about <laughs> anything to do with yes, the game. Like yeah. you're just having a, like a conversation you might have with anyone yeah. in person over coffee or whatever. Um, so I think it's cool that there are games that enable these social spaces where you sort of have this thing that you're doing in common, but it's not the focus. It just leaves you room to be people with each other and just to talk about whatever 
Um, it's like a good social lubricant. Um, and I'm not sure how much, like, I would love to talk to a real MMO designer and to hear about how much of that is purposeful, but that's what I see happening in online games that I find really interesting. They're more just uh, an ability to get together, almost. Yeah, and that's what that's why in Sybil the, the MMO is so minimalist, because that was me kind of recognizing that you just need a little bit of something to do in order to have that social space. Yeah. So in Sybil, it's just you're doing what you do in an MMO is just point and click on, on monsters <laughs> most, <laughs> most of the time, you know, and I took out all the complicated HUD because that wasn't really enabling anything. And I'm just saying, like, here's the social space and here are the sort of idle activities that give you the room and the space to have the social area um, so that that's sort of what I drew on for Sybil and what I've thought about um, when I've reflected on playing these uh, a game like Final Fantasy Online. Okay, fantastic. Well, considering we're here talking because of your games and that kind of thing, it's amazing to talk about the one that has almost been the background for your biggest game so far. So it's yeah. very interesting. So we're going to move on to your next game. So we're going to listen to some music from that. before we move on to your next game um as you're unfamiliar with the show before now um we have a section of the show where although you're trapped in a deserted place we have the idea that you can choose a place from gaming that you would like to be deserted in i mean this desertion isn't malicious in any kind of way i'm yeah. not trying to make you die or i'm trying to starve or anything but it's the idea of just being trapped with these games that you hold so dearly to your chest <laughs> so yeah. if there is a place from gaming um that you would like to be deserted in is there something that comes to mind so last week i spoke to mr richard stanton from uh Eurogamer and ign and he's a games writer and uh he chose the world of earthbound so on it and tucson and all those kinds of places and yeah. uh we had uh danny o'dwyer from GameSpot a few weeks ago and he chose uh the island of the witness so very beautiful, very colorful, very nice. Is there something that immediately springs to your mind for like a place that you'd get like to get lost in or deserted in? Yeah. For me, it would be Besaid Island in Final Fantasy X-2 specifically. Okay. Um, and not in ten because like I wouldn't want to be there when it, if it's not the calm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so after. definitely, yeah, definitely after that happens. Um, but yeah. 
Poseidon Island is one of my favorite tranquil, beautiful video game. So spaces. chilling out in a tropical island. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a good choice. That's a really good choice. I can get behind that. <laughs> so now we know where you're stuck. So you're playing Final Fantasy XI on Poseidon Island. There's also this next game that you're going to play on the island as well that's developed by Nintendo EAD and published by Nintendo. It was released for the Wii U in May last year and is the first new Nintendo IP since Pikmin in 2001. Players play as a squid humanoid kid thing as they attempt to spray a whole map in as much of their team's paint color as possible to win a match, using a crazy amount of weapons and items similar to other shooters. It received high critical acclaim and was praised on release for the inventive gameplay and artistic style. It now has a thriving online community and a growing competitive scene. It's Splatoon. Yes, Splatoon rules. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I put this on my list because it fulfills the need to practice something and to learn and to get better at something and to grow. Um, And there are multiple games on this list that fulfill that just because I think that that's something that's really important to me. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to only be getting better and learning one thing forever. I'd want a couple things that I could, you know, switch off between. So this is one of those games. Okay, so do you play Splatoon regularly online? Are you are you getting towards that competitive <laughs> edge in terms of Splatoon? Yeah, I was for a while. I'm just so busy with like work and other stuff that I am unable to play it as regularly as I'd like. Okay, uh, but there was a while where I was like super addicted and I was playing it like every single night, and I could imagine myself doing that for a very long time. I find <laughs> that game really fun. I'm not. Someone who has historically played many shooters, I don't tend to be the kind of person that likes games that have, um, you know, like kind of twitchy controls. Yeah. Um, I just, I like slower paced games, but for Splatoon, the the feedback is so visceral, you know, where you're shooting and you're sort of yeah. painting everything around you. And then you're diving and you're Yeah, and it's and very, jumping. yeah, the feel of it's really good, but also just that act of painting the world and having that, um, having that be the mechanic makes it work for the for me personally because the the feedback loop is really fast where I'm shooting stuff and I can really see what I'm doing really quickly. Um, I find it harder to follow more um, traditional shooters. I guess like if I practice more, I could get a lot better, but I just haven't. Um, and in Splatoon, I felt like the barrier to entry was really low, which was good for me. Yeah. Um, and the the art style is just really cute and adorable, and it's totally the kind of thing that I'm into. Um, and between that and the low barrier to entry, but also from what I can tell, a very high skill ceiling, um, that makes it a super ideal game for practicing over a long period of time. Well, it's and strange because the round's really short, which makes it. Yeah. Something about short rounds that makes it feel even more welcoming because I can walk away from it um, at any point and there's a pretty low level of commitment. Um, and that that's also a, a positive for me. Well, it's strange because it's one of these games, uh, many shooters sort of sell themselves on being tactical like battlefield not so much like call of duty or uh, games like that but more like battlefield uh, they're all about tactics but splatoon really is one of those games that you can you can play as a shooter if you want to it's kind of 
not what you're meant to be doing but then you can look at the map on the wii u gamepad and you can see okay we need to cover this area and if i go over here and i use this item to cover this and then i can move over here it does get really tactical towards especially considering um you can't quite speak to people or communicate with your team very well mm-hmm. so it's very much built upon you having to take the initiative and deciding what to do and that can be quite uh um, i don't know what like very fulfilling if you get it right that's what yeah, i found yeah it also too. makes it really good for being on a deserted island where you can't talk to anyone that's <laughs> also the whole true game yeah. is designed to enable that kind of uh that kind of play where you're not actually talking to anyone um and i think being able to look down at your gamepad and you know like you were saying sort of analyze what the uh, the map state is is really interesting, and yeah. I like the I like the duality of how they used the gamepad in this specific game. I thought it was really smart. Um, so yeah, it is the kind of game where you can be sort of the lone wolf and make it work, but you can also really um, analyze what's going on and be a good team player through that, which is really interesting. Like all the information you need is there; you yeah. just need to use it. Um, and I think that that the way that it teaches you to analyze the situation in real time is really good. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of shooters and a lot of action games like do that. So that's not anything new, but I think it does it really well, um, for me. So yeah. How did you find the single player? Did you play through the single player? Uh, no, I actually mostly only played online multiplayer. I played some of the single player campaign. Okay. It was fun. I thought that the, um, the design of how they introduce new mechanics is really well done. I think Nintendo almost always does that really well. They're super yeah. good at storializing <laughs> stuff um, in a way that feels natural and that teaches things very well. So I I mostly went through that stuff and was like, yep, Nintendo's really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> they continue to be consistent. So yeah. considering you play online uh, mostly, uh, what is your go-to setup then? What uh, weapon and item are you using most? Uh, I usually go for like the that gun that's the first one that you get in the game that's kind of square shaped. It's a splatter style gun. I don't remember what it's uh, called. The uh, splatter shot junior. Yeah, I think that's it. That is definitely the best gun in the game, and I've been using it the whole time because um, that special ability it has where you're special where you have the shield. Oh, the bubble. Uh, yeah. Yeah is so powerful uh, you can basically get out of any near-death situation and you know something that's really important when you're playing that game is staying alive for as long as possible because yeah. even that tiny delay is huge for such short matches and you just lose so much time where you could be painting stuff so that really supports them that shield supports the mechanics so well because it lets you optimize the amount of time that you spend painting the world which is really what you want to be doing when you're playing a match of Splatoon. Fantastic. Well, it's funny because uh, last year when Splatoon came out, I was living in the UK and obviously it being a Nintendo game and me being an absolute sucker for Nintendo, I picked it up and I really enjoyed it and I played a lot online. Uh, Since moving to Japan, I found out that uh, a lot of my students, um, especially maybe uh, elementary age, they're obsessed with Splatoon. Splatoon oh, that's is so awesome. <laughs> Splatoon is the it's the next Pokemon here in Japan. It's so that's big. So cool. They sell so much Splatoon merchandise now and that kind of thing. Uh, although the Wii U has such a small install base, 
unfortunately so. Um, so many Japanese children are playing Splatoon and they are so good at it. It's crazy. I can't even keep up. I played a few matches with some students that begged me to play because they knew I liked games. So I played and I was like, what is going on? These kids are so good. <laughs> and it's really crazy cool. because it's this game that, as you said, has this low barrier for entry, but this high skill ceiling. So these kids who maybe aren't necessarily great at games, like they try and play Smash Brothers or they try and play Pokemon, but they they sort of just muddling their way through it. Um, they pick up Splatoon and then they can paint all over the place, but then they just get better and better. And, oh, they're so good. <laughs> yeah, I think that that just speaks to how well designed the game is i think it's a really good game not that all games need to have a low barrier to entry but i think that that's a strong point of splatoon so do you reckon with enough training you'd be able to take on some japanese students in a competitive <laughs> game i i think so i'm i'm not sure i feel like all kids 10 and younger are always going to be way smarter than me so <laughs> like, maybe in some universe but <laughs> So we're we're not going to see a team Fulbright Splatoon competitive team yet. No, that would be cool. Although myself and Noelle, who's the animator at Fulbright, have played Splatoon together a bunch, and she's also a really big fan. So there's some Splatoon action at Fulbright. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So now we've got that sort of uh, competitive edge and uh, another game that you, you can get better at and that kind of thing. We're going to move on to your next game, which is uh, the host for Your Deserted Place. Um, so we're going to listen to some music. Japanese version of this next game was developed by Square, but the non-Japanese version was developed by Square Enix Europe. It's the sequel to the hit title Final Fantasy X, and it was originally released for the PlayStation 2 in 2003 in Japan, and then a year later in the West. It's also received a HD remaster for the PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, and the Vita, alongside Final Fantasy X, and the game's story follows the main protagonist, Yuna, and her friends Riku and Pain, and in comparison to its predecessor, it wasn't reviewed as well, but still received good review scores aboard across from the critics. It's Final Fantasy X 2. So Nina, please tell me why Final Fantasy X 2 is on your list. So there are a couple reasons I put this game on the list. Um, I guess it always comes to mind when I, whenever anyone asks me, like, what games do you love or what games do you want to play? I'm always like, Final Fantasy X 2. Because <laughs> uh, it's probably maybe my favorite game ever. It's definitely like in the top, my top favorite games ever. Okay. Uh, so it's on this list Probably a lot for that reason, but also as far as how it fits into the scheme of this list, it fulfills two things. One being I wanted to have games that were narrative, because I think 
something I like to do a lot is like, I like to read a good book and I'll read it again and again. And I like rereading things or rewatching okay. movies. I'm the kind of person that gets a lot out of that. Yeah. Um, so I wanted some games that would allow me to do that. Um, some games that weren't just about skill testing, um, or learning or socializing. So this is sort of like a relaxing game. Um, and also I, would love to learn how to speed run Final Fantasy X too. So I guess it also has a skill testing factor there. Yeah. Uh, but I've I've looked at Final Fantasy X two speed runs before, and I think they're really interesting. And it it uh, is one of the Final Fantasy games I think that has like the f- the faster speed runs. I was going to say because uh, I absolutely love speed runs and yeah, AGDQ and all that kind of thing. I, I absolutely just I'm obsessed with. Um, yeah, they're really cool. And I've always been fascinated by you know, runs of like Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy IV where people sit there for four hours and they remember everything. Yeah. But I've never seen a Final Fantasy X-2 uh, speedrun. So how quick, how quick is, is it on average? Do you know? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's definitely one of the shorter ones. Okay. Uh, but it's not run as frequently. Um, and I'm not sure why. I've read a lot of, forum threads about how it's highly like great for speed running yeah. uh, which makes sense because i mean the combat itself like you can optimize and become really really fast at yeah uh you know given that it's sort of like a real-time slash turn-based system unlike some other final fantasy games yeah the combat changed a lot from final fantasy 10 yeah. to 10 to for anyone who doesn't know you start using these things called dress spheres and mm-hmm. uh you can give unisort different powers depending on these other things very different from final fantasy 10 yeah, I think the battle system in Ten Two is like one of the best Final Fantasy battle systems. Personally, I don't know if other people agree, but I definitely stand by that. Especially with the dress sphere um, system, it's super, super streamlined, and I think way more interesting than the sphere grid stuff. Or like, I never want to spend so much time in the UI to like get my characters to level up. Okay, and Ten Two kind of got rid of that and really just makes it more about being in the world and i super appreciate that um so yeah i love this game for many reasons that's one of them (laughs) so what what do you what do you say to those people who because i had uh samuel roberts who is the editor of pc gamer here in the uk uh he chose final fantasy 10 for his list and then i asked him about final fantasy 10 too and he, he in his words i do apologize he said he absolutely despised that game so <laughs> did he say why um, I think it was the combat and sort of, I can't remember what he said, sorry, <laughs> exactly. No, it's um, okay, I was serious. I think, uh, I think also the, one of the main complaints he had was one of the main complaints I see often about this game is the sort of J-poppy nature. Um, oh, that's the best part of it. <laughs> yeah, that appeals to a lot of people. And uh, obviously living in Japan now, it's very sort of, qu- not quirky to me, it's it's very normal. Yeah. Um, but to a lot of people, it's very quirky and it's very different from 10, which was this serious uh, game that was deep into the f- fallacies of religion and all that kind of thing. And then 10 2 was a bit more, ah, la, 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 kind of <laughs> very yeah, excitable like and fun. If you just look at it on the surface, but it still addresses a lot of the same. It builds on a lot of the stuff that 10 set up really well. I love 10 as well. Okay. Um, but you know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about um, New Yevon and the Youth League and how that evolved from what happened in 10 and what yeah. that means about the world and what that means about 
like what happens when something as extreme as, you know, sin being defeated happens and how people deal with that and how people respond to someone who's sort of a hero figure and how that person being Yuna um, learns from that and how it helps her or how it helps her grow and what that means. There's like a lot of really deep stuff happening in 10 too that I think is way more like compelling to me personally than okay. 10 because it's so much more focused um, on, you know, Yuna as a character. Yeah. And it's really all about her growing up and, um, you know, learning how to live for herself um, rather than her in 10, she's really living to defeat sin. Yeah. And then, you know, tend to addresses that in a really, really interesting way while also still dealing with a lot of that world building stuff that they addressed in, in 10. Um, but you know, I think a lot of people get distracted by the, uh, what they think of as like the J pop look and feel and dialogue and the quirkiness of it. Um, but I think that that makes it an even more interesting game because you rarely ever see that sort of thing. And I think that they, do it really well and they took a big risk and I think that it is an incredible game that is very underappreciated. <laughs> it's also <laughs> super empowering for women, which is really important. Yeah. And this came out when I was a teenager and I basically had a heart attack because I had never seen any game that was like a supergirl game. Yeah. Um and the game is all about their friendship um rather than being like a love story like 10 it was definitely a love story in 10 too but the focus is really on the friendship between the women. Yeah. So I played this with my young girlfriends and we would all just be like, "Oh, I'm Yuna and I'm Riku and and she's Pain and like let's go <laughs> like they have friendship like we do blah blah blah." And I think that that is way that game did more for more people than many games could ever dream of doing um so yeah i think it's a super important game so if you were to have a friend on the island that could be either yuna riku or pain which one would you choose uh i think riku because <laughs> she's like so fun riku's like the friend that you want to like go to the bar with and like take shots and party and go dancing. <laughs> I think having like, um, Riku is uh, embarrass embarrassingly so uh, and horrible to admit to now. She was like my first video game crush. Oh I yeah, remember. I think you're not alone there. <laughs> I mean, even in 10, she was like super cute. Yeah. You know? All the Final Fantasy girls are. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> so it's funny because uh, the dress wear sort of disappeared, but then in 13 2, or 13 lightning returns sorry not 13 2 lightning returns we sort of saw a uh reappearance of that uh style of gameplay with lightning being able to change uh dresses on the fly and that kind of thing and have them augment what she's doing did you like 13 uh, lightning returns did you play it uh i haven't played it so i can't say okay also another thing i wanted to ask um in Final Fantasy, you know, you have your party and that kind of thing. But Tenti was very different because you had almost, as you said, this sort of friendship. It was almost like a buddy movie, kind of. And uh, with 15 coming out, that kind of, every time I watch like trailers for that and the sort of the bros, as they're saying, um, like fist bumping each other, it reminds me a lot of the relationships that Yuna, Riku and Pain has in Final Fantasy Ten Two. Are you sort of excited to play Final Fantasy Fifteen for that? 
um, relationship building uh, story type thing? Yeah, I I definitely hope that they tap into some of the same stuff, and I hope they also, you know, take advantage of what Final Fantasy X do also did did well is having humor and and in the midst of like what I I think is a really interesting story, um, having humor that's like not even necessarily plot related, just like funny slapstick moments. I thought that that <laughs> was really great, and I hope that yeah, this new Final Fantasy does that as well because I think it's super cool and interesting. Um, I'm have you, also have you played the, the most recent uh, demo? Sorry. No, I haven't played the demo yet. Um, I should. Uh, but I, I believe the person, one of the designers or leads on the new Final Fantasy also worked on Type O, uh, I think. Uh, oh, yes, because Type O was one of your Game of the Years for Giant Bombs list last year, wasn't it? Yeah, I really like that game. And that game has a lot of, um, not as much as Ten Two, but it has some humor and it has a lot of friendship dynamics because yeah. it's got an ensemble cast of students. I love that game as well. Yeah, I, lo- I really, really adore that game. So I think that, you know this team if it is much the same team has proven that they're interested in that sort of thing in that game so i hope that they continue to focus in on that so are there other um because you you've had final fantasy 11 final fantasy uh we spoke about final fantasy 10 and you have final fantasy 10 too is final fantasy a series that's sort of stuck with you through the ages or did it start with 10 and 10 to and naturally progress to 11 or had you played like final fantasy 7 or final fantasy 6 and then onwards uh the earlier final fantasies were a little bit before like i don't think i even had the consoles to run those games when they came out so i missed okay. those um and i i've played some of the earlier ones later in life i haven't finished any of them yet i've actually mostly just started some of them yeah uh fairly recently um, so yeah, I played like 10 and 10, two and 11. I obviously played for a really long time and I didn't get super into the other later final fantasies though. Um, I dabbled in them and had fun with them, but I didn't connect with them like I did, um, 10 and 10, two. Fair enough. Okay. So we're going to move on to your next game now that I have no idea about. You will have to help me explain what this game is. I couldn't quite research it either. And um, so I'm very interested to hear what it's all about. So let's listen to some music, if I can find any, and jump straight right in. Okay, Nina, so the next game you've chosen, I'm not sure what the game is. I found out that the game comes from a series of visual novels that have been released uh, across the PlayStation 2, the PSP, the PlayStation 3, the DS, and the 3DS. And it's developed by a Japanese company called Idea Factory. 
and they and uh, those games have been ported by Arc Systems and Rising Star Games here in the West. And it's a series that has also been developed into an anime and a manga here in Japan. And uh, the story or the game's plot follows the main character uh, Chizuru Yukimura, who heads to Kyoto to search for her father. And it's a series called Hakuoki. Could you yes. explain what this is and what uh, <laughs> what was the actual game that you're taking to the island? Sure. So Hakuoki is... A, are you familiar with Otome games? Yes. So it's an Otome game. Okay. Um, and it's basically... It's set in feudal Japan and you can pursue relationships with these uh, samurai who are part of a group called the Shinsengumi. Um, and... They are an interesting little crew. You're basically put in with this group of the captains of the Shinsengumi. Okay. Um, this isn't spoilery because it happens in the very beginning of the game. Yeah. Uh, just, just, just for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Otome game in Japan basically means maiden game. And it's games yes. uh, uh, specifically targeted towards women. Almost like yep. visual novels for women. Yep. So... Um, and unfortunately, this one, I don't believe, has any... It doesn't have any female and female-to-female romance options, which is kind of a bummer. Uh, <laughs> it's all straight people. Um, so just so people know, kind of a bummer. Um, but so in the beginning of the game, you... Yeah, you're going to Kyoto to look for your dad because you can't... You don't know where he went. He's been gone for a while. Um, and you get there and you you get into this fight. Um, you get attacked uh, and you kind of get rescued by you don't really get rescued by them but like the shinsengumi captains were chasing these people that were attacking you and like you know fought them because they had already been chasing them and you kind of got caught in the middle yeah and then they basically decide that you saw too much and take you back with them to their headquarters and lock you in a room uh while they decide to what they want to do with you um, and this sort of evolves into you staying with them and uh, being not really, you're, it seems like you're stuck there at first, but you're not really stuck there. And it ends up, you know, you get close with them. Obviously, it's an Otome game. So it's about you really. <laughs> it sounds almost like the plot of The Last Samurai. <laughs> uh have i i don't think i've seen the last it's a tom cruise film where he is an american soldier who gets captured by some samurai and then ends up sort of staying there but not as a prisoner and then grows to become one of the family almost yeah it's kind of like that um although she is like a prisoner technically for the first part of the game uh but over the course of the game you it's interesting because it it is based on all these like real historical events. Um, and, you know, depending on, so it's a branching narrative game. So depending on the path you choose, you see these different events happen and what the Shinsengumi's role is in it. Um, I'm not like super clear on all the historical accuracy, but I hear it's pretty historically accurate. And the whole game has this encyclopedia that's hooked into the system where sometimes a phrase will pop up that has, you know, you're like reading and there's a word in red and you can press a button to bring up this encyclopedia and like learn what that word means okay. or like what that battle was or who that leader was. So you learn a lot about feudal Japan, which is kind of fun. <laughs> um, so, you know, putting this game on my list, I was like, okay, it fulfills my need to have like a book I want to reread. Yeah. It also helps me learn this like historical stuff, which is kind of interesting. And most importantly, it's 
obviously a romance game and yeah i had trouble i was like what are like the essential things you need like being able to learn and grow and feel like you're active um keeping your mind fresh by like reading stuff and and feeling like you could relax that that way and i was also like what about sex like i would be alone so i wouldn't be able to have sex with anyone and <laughs> so i need something to fulfill like the romance sex side of things so this game fulfills that um because you know it's all about you dating these like hot samurai guys and it's like so good um it's very good at at uh, exuding romance and flirting and you know like a lot of these otome games each guy sort of has these different qualities and they're all very different uh characters so you can kind of like pick who you like or you know date all of them and because you like them for different reasons and you want to do that i've been going through every route um I was going to say, is there, like, every time you start, do you sort of get tempted by the one you like the most every time you're like, oh, I need to try and romance such and such, but I always get drawn to this person instead? Yeah, I, so how I usually play these Otome games or visual novels is I play through once blind without any guide or anything and just see where that takes me, see what path I end up going down. So the first time I played this game, I got the neutral ending um, where you don't get any romance. I think oh, I was like, oh, was the most boring ending. Yeah. No, it was actually the neutral ending in Hakuofi is really good. Okay. For the record, this game is incredibly well written. The story is really, really interesting. Uh, and normally I when I see a branching narrative game, I expect one path to be better than all the others because often a writer will be like, I want to write this one story, but like I should make all these paths and then the paths aren't as interesting. But in this game, all of the paths are really interesting and it's pieced together in really fascinating ways where like each path doesn't seem to contradict itself very much. Like each one just builds the world a little more and they just did the ensemble cast super well. Um, It's just like, it's really, really incredibly well-written. So the neutral ending was also very good. Um, and I feel like I really need to play every single path in this game to fully understand the story because they're all in harmony. Um, so how many potential endings are there? (laughs) Uh, I don't know the total, but each guy I think has like multiple, like a good ending, a romantic ending or yeah, a good ending, a bad ending, and maybe there's like a neutral ending for each guy. I'm not really sure. I haven't And And how many guys are there? Uh, let's see, there's five or six. Okay, so that's a, that's a good amount of endings. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Um, I've been playing it recently, um, a lot. And I've been so playing... what do you, what, what console do you play on? I've been playing it on PS3. PS3, okay. Um, so yeah, Hakuoki basically fulfills the need for romance because romancing anime boys is great. <laughs> <laughs> You are very inspired by anime, I've heard as well. Yeah, I do love anime. I mean, like, you know, I haven't actually like played that that many visual novel style games. Um, I've played Christine Love's work and I'm a huge fan of hers, um, but I've only recently delved into Otome games and I'm super okay. addicted. So that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> so it, is anime like a big inspiration for you in terms of storytelling? Because anime sometimes can be a little silly and a little quirky. Um, yeah. Uh, what, I mean, are, what are some anime that have stood out for you in terms of storytelling that maybe uh, you can learn from or build from when you're designing games? Yeah, I think, you know, 
everything I engage with, whether it's just someone telling me a story over drinks or watching a movie or watching an anime, you know, it all kind of influences me whether I like it or not. And I think that's okay. probably subconsciously sticks in the back of the brain. Yeah. So like, you know, it's all just like this body of work that I'm drawing from all the time. Um, and I guess for anime, I'm really into shoujo work. Okay. Uh, I have like a huge Sailor Moon tattoo <laughs> on my arm. So that's a, a big one for me. Um, and I'm really into like romantic comedy anime. Um, I think that there's a lot, a lot to be learned about dialogue from romantic comedy anime. Cause so much of those kinds of pieces are dependent on interesting dialogue that builds characters and feels okay. fun from moment to moment. Um, and you know, writing relationships requires a lot of subtle language. And I think, romantic comedy manga and anime are really really good at that so i yeah. i look at a lot of that work um because obviously i you know when i was working on Sybil, i was thinking a lot about how to write romance um and how to write human relationships um, yeah it's very so strange because for anyone who doesn't know in japanese culture relationships are very different very very different um when you, most games or most animes are based around romantic comedies of uh high school students so it's always almost a certain demographic uh, demographic of people and the relationship is always kind of pure and very they take a lot of time to build up and it's this ongoing back and forth between two people who know they like each other usually but it's almost incredibly pure and different to how maybe relationships in the West build up. So it's very, very odd sometimes to look at relationships in Japan in comparison to the West. Yeah. And I think it depends. Like, you know, I think, Oh, like probably a lot of romantic comedy anime is like that, but I, I'm thinking of stuff like, um, uh, Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun or uh, Kimi ni Todoke or Peach Girl or okay. um, oh, what's the really famous one that I'm obsessed with? Um, Lovely Complex is a really important one for me. Um, and I think that like for Lovely Complex, for example, it's not so much about the purity like some of those other ones are. Like in that anime, it's focused on a guy and a girl. The guy is very short and the girl is very tall. And that's sort of like the, their shtick is like, I guess they're a lot like a comedy duo that's very famous in Japan. I don't remember their name, but their relationship is sort of based on that as a stereotype and then built out from there in really interesting and subtle ways. <laughs> okay. But without relying on a lot of the like, it's not like a flowery, cutesy, like silly romance. It's It's very funny, but it's very, for lack of a better term, down to earth. Um... So I'm into that stuff. Um, and also, uh, not just shoujo, but, you know, stuff like Robot Carnival or Akira, um, Ghibli movies like that. That, you know, more famous stuff yeah. is also really inspiring to me. So That's yeah, all like more that all-encompassing anime that have elements of all types. Yeah, or like, you know, stuff that's darker. Um, I'm not, I think I've been more into shoujo recently, but I, I've tried to have a pretty i've tried to like watch a variety of stuff um not into to... the sort of shonen battle jump manga type stuff yeah and like you know i've read a lot of that stuff too um yeah. like i really like 
I haven't read it in a long time, but I read a lot of One Piece a while ago, and I liked that quite yeah, a bit. One Piece is my um, lifelong obsession, I think. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Awesome. So we're going to move on to your next game, which is, I think, I think I know where you're coming from with the next game and what you're going to explain, but we're going to listen to some music and go straight into it. So just before we move on to your next game, Nina, we have the question of the week, which is a uh, question from listeners of the show who put to me on Twitter for my guest. And it has to be a gaming slash deserted island type question. So not just a random question. So this week's question comes from uh, Chris Field on Twitter, and he asks, what video game vehicle would you use to traverse the island? So if you could have any vehicle from gaming, um, what would you use to travel across the beautiful hills of Besaid Island? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, there's so many. Uh, let's see. I guess off the top of my head, I would pick a chocobo i mean that would be that would make sense within the universe and i don't like who doesn't want to ride a chocobo i mean and i mean i guess we can technically classify them as vehicles although they are beautiful animals they're not a vehicle but that's what makes it more fun is that they're a cute animal that you can be friends with and yeah like a nice little little pet and it's good (laughs) so definitely a chocobo (laughs) okay we'll give you the chocobo we'll give you the chocobo you have to take care of it though yeah, I would okay? want to. That would be a good a good way to pass the time. That's true. Well, talking about passing the time, the next game that you've chosen was developed by Nintendo's EAD team and directed by long-standing Mario director Takeshi Tezuka. It was released worldwide in September of last year for the Wii U, and it's the first game that allows players to create Mario levels using their own tools, similar to those used by the developers of the series. And players can share their levels online and have others play through, and you can play others as well. It received incredibly high reviews and was praised for its ease of use and the ability to make simple to complex levels. And it's had incredible amount of updates since then. It's Super Mario Maker. Nina, please tell me why is Super Mario Maker on your list? So I put uh super mario maker on the list because i wanted something that was basically would basically allow me to express some creativity um i thought so. i mean i <laughs> presumably i could be making games if i have a computer to run stuff on but i don't know if that's no, true not, not allowed so you, you can have super mario maker no pc okay, yeah so i'll have super mario maker to make games still because i love making games obviously it's what i do 
uh, what I'm doing with my life. Um, and I would want a way to do that if I was on a deserted island. And I think that Super Mario Maker has, unfortunately, the Super Mario Maker level editor is like a lot it's so much better than like any other level editor, (laughs) even professional game making software. Like obviously it's very different because you have a very limited amount of tools, but that also is a good thing because it gives you constraints, which are often useful. Constraints are always, Um, always incredibly helpful if you're trying to be creative. And the user experience design is just so good. Um, Obviously, you know, I'm not trying to burn like the incredible tools that I use every day, but like it's so refreshing to use Mario Maker because it's just so simple and so <laughs> playful to like make stuff using it. Whether yeah. you're like turning on the cat paw um, instead of the hand when you're drawing your when you're making your levels, <laughs> or you know, even just something as simple as like being able to switch what kind of item you're putting on uh, in your game by. Uh, shaking around your hand with yeah. the stylus it's a, it's a very playful way of doing things it isn't just like put place block here or do this it's like if you uh lay a string of blocks they play like the mario theme and it's yep. all these nice little touches that make you oh i just want to add more and more and just keep going yeah and it i think one of the most important features that they put in is the ability to test really fast um i just found out well i guess it doesn't really apply here but you know, you can, you can have someone with a pro controller, I think, and they can just like run the game and be playing it immediately. Like the turnaround rate for testing these games is really fast in Mario Maker. Uh, And that, you know, testing and doing iterative design is super important to me at least. So the system really supports that, which is good. Um, And yeah, the mechanics are interesting. You can snap things together in weird and unexpected ways. And it's just a, it would be a fun way to keep the creative juices flowing if I was alone on this island for a long time. <laughs> so have you already spent quite a bit of time with Mario Maker? I, obviously, I don't want to... We have a sort of saying, like a bus man's holiday. Well, obviously, you design games for a living. Uh, yeah. Do you go home and you're like, now time to design my Mario Maker levels? Yeah, I haven't been making as many lately, but I made a lot when it first came out. Um, uh, do so they, do they I have guess I got ratings? it out of my system. Are they difficult? <laughs> Oh, well, actually, it's funny. I'm really not well-practiced at Mario. I didn't grow up playing, like, older Mario games. I played Mario 64, but, like, I didn't. Ha- I never had a Super Nintendo or anything, okay. so I didn't get to play those early Mario games when I was younger. Yeah. So I don't have that, like, muscle memory that some people have for those games. Yeah. Um, but my boyfriend does, and so I basically, when I'm making Mario Maker levels, I make him sit with me and test them, because <laughs> I know that if I make one on my own, it would be super easy. Uh, presumably, if I'm on this island all alone for a long time, I could practice and get better at it and be yeah. my own Oh, tester, you can play other people's life, levels as well. Yeah, yeah. And in real life, I have other people test it as I'm making it, um, so... But I'm super, like, I don't like to make super difficult games. I like to make games that teach the player in really clear ways and, you know, help them play in a way that feels good. So I think most of my levels, except maybe one, are designed like that. One is just, like, really hard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah, it's fun. I've made a bunch of them. um, Are Are they out there on the internet for people to try? Yeah, I've tweeted the level IDs. Okay, them. well, I, I know, like I know what I'm doing today. I know what I'm yeah, doing. Yeah, they're today. they're in my Twitter like images or whatever. 
Oh, that's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna play them and I'm gonna give you a full detailed report later. Cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking about like ease of design and that kind of thing, is the stuff like in Mario Maker that you wish you could have in the engine that you use just although mario maker is built specifically for mario games obviously and uh when you're using game engines whether it's anything like unity to more experienced things like the unreal engine or that kind of thing uh they have to be built for multi-purpose games games that are very yeah. simple or games that are very complex but is there something that is that blew you away in mario that would just make your life so much easier other than obviously being able to test quickly because we we can't debug or create builds quickly enough with video games to be able to test them that fast but is there something uh in mario maker or a tool that you were like why do we not have that in this game engine uh i think i guess the first thing that comes to mind which i don't think would be helpful for all games but something that i thought was really neat that they did was the ability to see I forget how exactly you do it in the game, but you can play a level and have Mario leave like a trail of where the character had moved. Um, so you can see exactly where the player was, how the player moved through the level because okay. it leaves this trail behind. And obviously for Mario games, that's really helpful because you can see how someone moves from yeah. platform or to how, platform, how big a jump is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, I for a lot of games that would probably be really useful obviously not all but i thought that that was a really smart thing that they put into that game so yeah. i guess that's what comes to mind so similar to uh, have you played super meat boy have you ever uh, i have not in a really long time i played it a couple of times not because that has a sort of similar well it's only for you as the player but it tells you sort of where you died and what your run was like up until then to oh, yeah, see yeah, your yeah. fastest yeah. and that kind yeah, of thing and Demon's souls has the way like shows all the ways that other players died in that area yeah. and stuff so yeah. a lot of games have done that sort of thing i think it also could be a good design tool so in Mario Maker, you can have the different era of Mario. So you can have like Super Mario, Super Mario 3, Super Mario World, and then new Super Mario Bros., which is the one that you always default to. Yes. Which one? Is it the new Super Mario Bros. or the older ones? Uh, The older ones. I forget exactly. Like like I said, I never really played the older okay. ones very much. So I don't know off the top of my head. But the one that's like kind of more pastel colored is the one I usually pick. I think it has the cutest art. <laughs> That's what I go for. Uh, but it also depends on what I want to do because, you know, certain sets don't have certain mechanics. So yeah. it kind of depends. But I usually go for that more pastel. Is, it, is there stuff. like a go-to item as well? Or do you... Um, cause a lot of people are like, I like using the, the shoe or the cloud. So people fly through levels and that kind of thing. And then people sort of always are like, I, I don't want to use the shoe this time, but I always use the shoe. Is, <laughs> is there an item that you always go to for each level? So I don't have one that I always go to, but when I go in to start making a Mario Maker level, I try to always pick one object to design the level around. Um, I haven't always done this, but usually I'll like, for example, the first level I ever made, I said, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to take the, um, what are they? The turtles, the Koopas. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a Koopa and design a whole level around their, how they behave, behave and try and make interesting situations that specifically focus on the Koopas and what they do. Um, so that's sort of a way to constrain myself because there's so many things you can do in Mario Maker. Um, and I think that it's a good, 
for me, it's a good design practice to sort of focus in on one specific um discrete mechanic yeah um, it's sort of almost an unwritten rule Uh, many game designers i've noticed sort of always have one idea and 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 try and build around that idea as a gameplay mechanic to begin with and i think holds true with Mm -hmm. that if you base your level around maybe wall jumping or something it, it, it eases the player in and then you can make the level gradually harder or you can just make this fun free-flowing experience it's very hard to go from multiple mechanics without the player almost feeling a little disconnected maybe if they're not good at one mechanic yeah i think it's easy to overwhelm the player um, and that will make them want to walk away uh and it'll just make them feel frustrated um and that is not the kind of game that i want to make especially in super mario maker so yeah yeah i i try to keep it simple fantastic so uh on the deserted place in uh besaid island you can make mario levels forever yes <laughs> and you can just keep track of them on the miiverse and see how many people are playing them Maybe throw out some difficult ones, see what the percentage of people completed them is. I always love making levels that have maybe 1% completion because it means that there are some people out there that can complete it, but then everyone else <laughs> is is terrible. <laughs> You've got some special players. <laughs> Mostly my friends who only play Mario games. So, yeah. <laughs> which is an unfair comparison for the rest of the world, I think. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on to your next game now, which is uh, also a, a very new game. It only came out last year as well. So let's listen to some music and go straight in. Okay, so the next game on your list, Nina, is the indie smash hit from last year that was developed by Psyonix and originally developed for the PlayStation 4 and the PC, but is now on Xbox One. Uh, it's the sequel to the PSN 2008 release, Supersonic Acrobatic Rocket Powered Battle Cars. And in, in this game, you play as a rocket powered car uh, in an <laughs> amalgamated version of soccer to you or football to me but instead of players you actually use cars hitting a big ball around in an arena and it's just blown up and this game is played by so many now and it has a growing esports scene as well it's rocket league yes so i put rocket league on this list for very similar reasons to splatoon um i wanted at least a couple games that i felt like i could practice um and get better at and you know rocket league is a really really incredible game because it kind of like splatoon actually has a low barrier to entry where and i've i've like tried this i've introduced this game to people um of various 
levels of interest in games in general um, to see how they would react. And everyone has picked it up really easily, yeah. um, or at least, you know, the basics of Rocket League um, and has had a lot of fun with it. So that sort of proved my belief that it has a low barrier to entry, but a very, very high skill ceiling. Yeah. Um, and my boyfriend Emmett plays it literally constantly. So I've seen this happen literally. <laughs> like, <laughs> so now it's high, funny because it it, people who are very good at Rocket League, I think, have almost mastered physics. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to balance your car in the air and know exactly how it's going to twist and turn or land. Of, uh, you need a degree in physics to be able to be good at Rocket League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the system, Rocket League system is really, really expressive um, in a very different way from Splatoon, uh, especially in the way that the game feels. Yeah. Because um, I think Rocket League, what Splatoon has that I really like, what I mentioned earlier, is that really fast feedback loop where I can like shoot something and see the paint on the wall. Um, and that feels you know, meaningful to me. Whereas in Rocket League, you have less of that. Um, and I think that, but what you have with Rocket League is you, the game feel is just like super incredible that even if you're not really sure what's going on, like everything just feels really bouncy and crunchy yeah. and fun. Um, and that, you know, can really motivate someone to want to get better at the game and to want to keep engaging with it. It always feels fresh in that way from moment to moment. I think the moment to moment gameplay in Rocket League is really really strong and i think that that's what keeps people playing obviously like you said it's blown up a lot and people people i know a lot of people that play it a lot yeah um and i think that that is really interesting um and yeah i hope the esports scene around it grows because i think it really has the potential to be uh be that yeah uh, well it's incredibly fun to watch as well yeah let alone play it's very fun to spectate that's true yeah um but yeah, I think the moment-to-moment -moment action is super fun. The expressiveness of the system makes me want to learn it and to master it. So, you know, I wish I had time to do that. I don't really, <laughs> so I don't play it all that much. But I watch Emmett playing it a lot, and I'm just, I'm really impressed by that game. And it feels like one of those games that if I was going to practice something, I would want to play that quite a bit. It's incredible because the games you've chosen are almost like video game academia. And you're going to come, if you ever get rescued from Besaid Island, you're going to come back like with the ability to know Splatoon tactics inside out. And uh, <laughs> you're going to be able to design the greatest Mario levels of all time. And now you're going to master physics <laughs> in Rocket League. That would be fun. I, I aspire to that. <laughs> <laughs> so are you good at the game? Uh, I, I, so, do you think it's so-so or, or are you I like, no, I, I can hold my own. I think I would have to practice a lot more, but I think what's so cool about it is that, you know, I picked it up and was like, I always have this attitude where I, I'll pick up a game and I'm just like, uh, like I'm going to be really bad at this at first. Cause that's usually what happens. <laughs> but I started playing it and I was like, Oh wait, like, like I was like, I scored a goal, like in my first game. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. So like, it's cool that the game is so, well-designed as a game that's easy to pick up that I could do that right away. Yeah. Um, I definitely haven't gotten to the level where I feel like I'm, you know, climbing up the heights of the skill ceiling, like not at all, but I like it because I can pick it up even if I haven't played it for months and know that I can just like get right back into it because it's, it's that kind of game. Yeah. So have you seen the latest update that they're adding to the game? It's like basketball. 
Oh, I have not seen that. Yeah, I I don't know if it's free. I could be wrong on that. But um, there's an update coming where they replace the goals with these giant hoops. And then you have to sort of like dunk the ball. So maybe like pass it into the air and then like shoot into the air and then slam it down with the tail of your car or something. Oh, interesting. So I'll, I'll that almost adds another that. element to controlling the car. I just can't wrap my head around the people who are able to understand their spatial awareness when they're in the middle of the air (laughs) i just can't grasp it yeah i think the game is really good at being readable um once you get used to the controls it's really easy to keep track of the ball and the game really does help you focus on the ball as much as possible because that's obviously like the most important thing that you can be focusing on. Um, <laughs> even to the point of like, when you score a goal, I love that they blow all the cars away. Cause it's just like, yes, like the game acknowledges constantly, like this is the thing that you should be focusing on. Yeah. And it really works hard to make that as clear as possible in a game that is quite chaotic. Um, and I think it's, it's really, really great that they decided to focus on readability in that way. Cause yeah. I think that that, is what makes people want to play it is because it's readable. They can pick it up and that makes them want to play it more. Like being welcoming in that way, like is, is super, super helpful for a game like that. So I think the readability, the design of the readability is super strong. So some of the designers of uh, Rocket League who work at Cyanix actually did a talk recently. I'm not sure if it was at GDC. It probably was because GDC has just passed. And they were talking about uh, indie games and success and that kind of thing. And they were talking about how lucky they got because the game is essentially exactly the same as its predecessor. And that game was not successful at all. I don't know if you ever played it on the PSN. I did not. I've heard about it though. Yeah, so it it literally is just a, a almost like an alpha version of Rocket League. Um but they were talking about uh, I the idea of being successful and they knew it was a good idea and that they stuck with it because they knew there was something there. Do you sort of agree on that school of thought especially as an indie developer yourself that if you think you've got a good idea and it wasn't successful the first time, you could still make that idea a success? Uh, that's not my personal style. I tend to make a lot of things really fast. Like, you know, when I was starting out, almost all the games I shipped were from game jams and I was, we would make myself and my friends would make a game at a game jam and release it. Even if we felt like it was unpolished or unfinished or whatever, we would just put it out there. Um, so for me, I'm more about like shipping, shipping, shipping constantly. Um, even if I feel like something is imperfect, uh, I think I value shipping above all else a lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, And that's been helpful to me because I feel like I've been able to sort of hone in on my voice as a designer by doing that. Obviously, that's not how every designer works. Um, And I think that, you know, they obviously made the choice that was right for them in continuing to iterate on that idea. And that can be a really powerful thing, too. Uh, But it's not the kind of thing that I do personally. So how was it with Sybil then in terms of, having to maybe take your time a bit more and polish a game differently to a game jam were you constantly frustrated you're like i just want to release it i just want to release it now come on (laughs) it's taking too long i well we didn't actually it didn't take like an incredible amount of time to make i made the prototype in a prototype studio class that was basically a game jam a week so we made a game a week for a whole semester. Okay. And one of the weeks I made the prototype for Sybil um, and play tested a bit and was like, okay, I think this is a cool idea. I'm going to 
like make the whole thing. Um, and that's when I like invited my friends to work with me, et cetera. And then we worked on it on nights and weekends for a year and a half. Um, and at the point that we decided to ship it, uh, we could have kept working on it. Like there are definitely some things in that game that I, in a perfect world would have finished or polished up or whatever. Yeah. But it was at that point we had just gotten a ton of press from when I brought it and was showing it around PAX. I wasn't showing it at PAX, but I was like in town and showed people. In the got back a lot of the car. <laughs> yeah, basically in a hotel lobby actually. Um, and so that was a huge surge in press and we knew like we have to ride that wave. Like we're not going to get another chance. Yeah. Um, so I basically said, here's the cutoff date. We're going to get everything into the game that we can before then, but we're shipping what we have at that point. Yeah. Um, and also like fallout was about to come out, like all these really big games. So I was like, we also <laughs> like need to get out before this stuff because it's, yeah. you know, the press is going to be focusing on that over us for sure. Yeah. So, Ultimately, I was like, I need to ship at the optimal time for visibility. And if that means sacrificing some features, then so be it. Uh, and I think that that kind of thing happening happens more often than you think for lots of games. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anything ever ships in perfect condition. And I am just more, I'm, I'm pretty, I embrace that quite a bit. <laughs> so that's sort of my style. I was going to ask, um, what um, surprised me especially in this day and age was um you uh held a role at kickstarter yes um was it ever in your mind to maybe make a sybil kickstarter uh yeah actually when we started working on it i thought i was gonna make a kickstarter for it and like set up a whole page and everything uh and it was back then the scope of the game was much larger and as I was working on that, I realized that I was putting more time into making a Kickstarter than I was into making the game. And that was when I stopped uh, starter. Okay. I was like, I don't like if this is the like amount of time I'm going to have to be spending on this then it's not worth it because I need to make the game. And I had enough to be like, I had a job, so I had an income. Like it wasn't like I needed the Kickstarter to survive. Yeah. I basically was like, this is this would just be extra money. Like I don't actually need this and okay. I would rather make it just in the leanest way possible rather than relying on the Kickstarter, which worked for us. Obviously some developers need the Kickstarter. So that's, if that is what they need, that's great. Uh, but it didn't end up being the best idea for us. Did you have uh, any interesting backer rewards that you created that never made it into the final game? Um, I didn't, I don't remember really. Like I didn't get that deep into the rewards. Like, okay. I gave up before I gave up on the Kickstarter <laughs> before I really got into that. So I don't, I don't have anything interesting from that really. That's fine. Well, I think we've, uh, diverged enough from Rocket League to move on to your next game now. Um, and it's another Nintendo game. So let's listen to some music and go straight into it. Thank you. 
Okay, Nina, so your penultimate game, the second to last game on your list today, was developed also by Nintendo's EAD team, that special team in Tokyo, uh, with the producer Katsuya Eguchi. And it was released in the West in June of 2014 for the 3DS. And it's... uh, the latest, in, well, not the latest installment, but the latest main series installment for the Animal Crossing series. Uh, it's received incredibly well, and the reviews were superb for it, and it sold over 10 million copies to date, which is an incredible amount. Uh, it's Animal Crossing New Leaf. Yes, so I picked this game to be on the list because I felt like I would want a sense of... I would want something that could provide me with a sense of community and family. And I think that Animal Crossing is that kind of game where it's really about, you know, it's all about your town. Um, And you're, I mean, obviously you're the mayor of the town. So you're, you're doing like you're building stuff and, and you're doing the Animal Crossing thing. Like you're going fishing a lot. So you have sort of all these pastimes, which is also a good thing about the game and I am one of those people that will go fishing in Animal Crossing for hours and like not realize <laughs> it. Um so I love that kind of stuff. But also just so I have like the romance game, right? But like yeah. just having like buddies around is really important too. And people that you can feel kind of like warm and friendly with, but not in a romantic way. And I think that Animal Crossing fulfills that because I just, I love like the little towns and like making friends with all the other animals. It makes me feel very warm and fuzzy. Um, Even when things don't go so well, I think that that's also good and interesting. Um, And I like the act of having something to go back to every day, um, which I think kind of evokes that, that sense of having a family and a community. It's something that you go back to every day that you know is always going to be there that you can rely on. And I think that Animal Crossing is one of those games that you can always go back to and know that it's going to be there and know that you'll have something to do and know that you just, you have that and that's something that you're going to keep doing. Um, So I think that 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 Animal Crossing fulfills the community and family need um, in my list. So what happens when those family members leave, though? Then it's sad. But I mean, like, that's life, right? Like, that actually does happen. <laughs> so I think that with with the good and the bad comes that sense of community isn't destroyed by anything bad that happens. Like, it's still there. And if I feel like I need to restart the game, I can. So that helps. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think... But that's what's so charming about Animal Crossing is that it's not a perfect world. Like, it's a world that you can mess up in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that people can leave you. And I think that having that range of emotions at one's fingertips is really important. Like, I don't want to just be in a utopia. I think that would be pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> and Animal Crossing is definitely not a utopia. So no. <laughs> I think that, that that is a big draw for me. So is uh, New Leaf the first Animal Crossing game you've played, or have you played uh, previous games in the series? Yeah, it's actually the first one I played. Okay. So was it something that immediately just sucked you in when you played it? You were like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah, I actually bought a Nintendo 3DS specifically to play that. I mean, I've obviously played a bunch of of stuff since, but I sort of talked to a bunch of my friends who were playing it and I was like oh my god how have I never played this game before it's like the perfect thing for me because I love games that are just kind of about the world and and the characters that you encounter in that world like that's the kind of game I really enjoy playing 
So I got it and was like super addicted and I love decorating my house. Um, I grew up playing a lot of like dress up games and stuff. So being able to decorate things is something I, uh, I have a lot of fun with and it has that, it has all the friendship stuff and yeah, it's just like, it is a game that I feel like was made for me. (laughs) (laughs) So have you, uh, considering you grew up playing dress games and you like designing your room and that kind of thing in your house, have you played happy home designer? No, I actually haven't played Happy Home Designer, but it sounds like something I would really like. Yeah, even without being able to sort of go talk to the villages and go fishing and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think that developing a room with an aesthetic is a fun thing to do. So if I was only doing that, that's fine. I think that that is a cool thing to do and I would probably like it a lot. That's cool. So one thing when I talk about Nintendo games, um, especially uh, series like Animal Crossing and Smash Brothers, because they have this huge line of amiibos, is uh, do you have any amiibos? Have you caught the bug? Because I am well and truly infected by the amiibo <laughs> craze. So I know Animal Crossing has this huge line of both uh, amiibo models and now cards. Have you got any of those? I have, I'm not an amiibo person. I do have all three Yarn Yoshis. Um, That sounds like an amiibo person to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I have those three. Those are mine. We also have a Wario, but that's Emmett's. Uh, So I guess we have four total. I couldn't afford to get into that hobby because I collect (laughs) suit suits, uh, which are similarly little cute collectibles. Yeah. Uh, Suits are like little Disney plushies. Yeah. So I... I saw the Amiibo craze starting to happen, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to stay away from that because I already spent <laughs> way too much on Zoom Zooms. <laughs> yeah, my... Oh, God, it's like it's like crack to me, Amiibos. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're cute. They are. They are very cute. And the Animal Crossing uh, ones, because Nintendo have learned from the original Smash Brothers line, which were kind of based on the trophies from Smash Brothers and not very well built or designed... They've learned a lot from that, and uh, the Animal Crossing ones look beautiful. They're beautifully colored, and they're they're all round, and you just they all look quite chubby and wonderful, like they do in the game. It's really really That's nice. Cute. I'll have to look at those. Yeah, don't don't don't. <laughs> it's a <laughs> hole you will never yeah. recover from. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, on your island, you know you're checking Animal Crossing every day and uh, that kind of thing. Are you? Would you get a little bored after a while? I don't think so. I mean, you know, you don't have to play the thing every day, right? Like, I'm thinking of, like, when I... One well, that, thing that depends if you don't want weeds and things yeah, growing all true, over. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you don't have to check every single day to avoid that. Not every but, single day. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's the kind of thing... I mean, I'm the kind of person that enjoys doing that kind of thing. Like, I have iPhone games that I check in on every day. Like, my, okay. I have iPhone Atome games that, like, you, you kind of have to check in on every day yeah. and do, like things that aren't exciting they're kind of pointless but you know they get you points or whatever and i do them uh i find that kind of thing comforting to just like have a routine um so i don't i don't actually find that that sort of thing boring well quickly speaking of like social and nintendo and iphone have you been using mitomo at all since it was released no i have not oh maybe that's something you could check out and see if it, it, I don't know if it would hold up to the same sort of stands as like Animal Crossing in terms of checking in. It's very, very different. But yeah. that might be right up your street. 
I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> might be interesting. I might like it. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to move on to your final game now. And it's a very interesting game. Very, very interesting for multiple reasons. So let's listen to some music and finish the show. Okay, Nina, so the final game on your list of the games you're taking to Besaid Island. Well, I say taking. It's not a vacation. I'm sorry. You're <laughs> trapped there forever. Um, is the first title in what would become the beloved Soul series. It's developed by From Software and directed by series creator Hidetake Miyazaki. And it was released for the PlayStation 3 in Japan on February 5th, 2009. And then... A whole two years later, it came to the West. Um, the game takes place in the fictional kingdom of Boletaria and was a critical success as well as a commercial success for From Software, with the game selling 1.7 million copies worldwide. It's Demon Souls. Yes, so I put Demon Souls on the list because it's one of those games that I guess there are a couple reasons. One, it's another game that I feel like I could learn and get good at and specifically it's another game i would like to learn to speed run i think that i like have watched some speed runs of demon souls in the past and i think they're really interesting okay um and also playing that game feels so good because there are so many different ways of doing everything um i think i feel like every time i've played it it's always felt a little different um so having something that is multi-dimensional like that um is good. You know, like the other game that I said I would want to learn to speedrun is Final Fantasy X-2, which I yeah. think is a little more strict. Um, and Demon Souls is very... The moment-to-moment action is very, very freeform. Um, and I, I enjoy that kind of game, and I enjoy playing those kinds of games yeah. uh, multiple times over, kind of like I was mentioning before, I like rereading books and stuff. That's a game that I would have fun replaying, because it it would feel fresh and interesting each time from moment to moment. Yeah. And that is something that is important to me. So although, com- you know, very well, re- uh, highly regarded and loved by many, many people, Demon Souls is always kind of overshadowed by Dark Souls. So why is it that Demon Souls is on the list and maybe not Dark Souls? So I, I guess, I mean, I think, you know, everyone kind of has different opinions about this, but I actually really like the way... Um, Demon Souls is structured in the way that its levels are laid out okay. and how you have sort of that um, that central space that you can go to that will bring you to each level okay. um, and how that still supports like a non-linear um, experience of that game. 
whereas I always I always felt I know that Dark Souls is is definitely non-linear, but it felt more linear to me, and I I almost felt cons- more constrained by not having that central space um, as prominently as it was in Demon Souls. Yeah, I think that might just be my personal preference. Like I think both games are really incredible. Yeah. Um, also, Demon Souls. I just have a lot of good memories associated with Demon Souls too. Like I discovered it. I was dating this guy in uh, in B- the Boston area when I was in college. Yeah. And it wasn't, Demon Souls wasn't out in the States yet, but his friend like had a Japanese copy of it because it was already out in Japan, I guess. Yeah. And he it was out brought in Japan it for quite a while before. Yeah. And he lent it to us to play. And so myself and this guy I was seeing, um, we weren't dating. I was just like sleeping over his place. <laughs> we would like play it together. <laughs> and it's just this sort of like weird romantic memory that I have, I guess, associated with Demon's Souls. So I have sort of a soft spot for it yeah. of all the games in that series. Um, so I guess between liking the way they structured those levels and those memories, I think that that's why I picked that one. Although I think, I think probably like the narrative stuff in Bloodborne is the most interesting to me, but yes. as far as like a game I would want to play forever, Demon Souls, it still has that great combat system, great design, but it also has some of that nostalgia for me. So I think that's why I like that one the most. Well, it's really interesting you said that because uh, obviously when Demon Souls came out, it was very unknown. And uh, even the way I stumbled upon it was through a friend who just picked it up because the box art looked cool which is a very 90s thing and 80s thing that we all <laughs> used to do um and we played through it and it was absolutely amazing it was an incredible game and it just came out of nowhere and then obviously all of a sudden dark souls and then this yeah. whole new uh almost genre of difficulty type games like challenging uh no mercy type games came out uh and obviously now we have dark souls 3 coming out soon it's out in japan now i'm very tempted to get it but i'm holding out for the english copy um are you uh, a fan of the series and it's as it's continually gone through or are you like a complete and utter badass at it are you <laughs> able to get through it very easily and that kind of thing so i think i mean i played demon souls a lot um yeah. I mean, like I said, myself and that guy played it. I, I remember feeling really cool. Like I was young enough to be like, oh, I'm so cool for knowing about this obscure game, which is also like, a funny memory to have. It was, to be like, fair, it I, was very obscure at the time. Yeah, it was very, yeah. very obscure. And that was when I first was like discovering the idea of indie games and stuff. So that was like a pretty, this was like way before I even thought about making games, but it's still like, it's kind of an important time for me in my like discovery of games so it it has that association for me so I played it a lot back then Um, I also had a lot more free time back then these days you know I've played at least a little of all of the later ones um, but not nearly as much as I played of of Demon's Souls okay Uh, mostly because of being busy and as a game designer I try to play a lot of different games just to get a taste of what's being made out there and playing games that I feel like are good (laughs) reference. Yeah. So I don't, I get really like, I'm really deep in Hakuoki. (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) once in a while I'll have a game where I just like really play all of it super thoroughly. Yeah. But I haven't had that for the Souls series since Demon's Souls. So are you excited for Dark Souls 3 or are you just going to give it a little bit and then maybe pick it up later on? So I, since I already you know, these games, obviously the Soul series has evolved quite a bit, but a lot yeah. of it 
I feel pretty familiar with. So I also tend to be a late adopter of stuff. I don't usually get things right when they're released. So I'll probably wait wait a little bit, but I don't tend to look at footage. I avoid footage until I like get to play it, Um, but I'm definitely going to play it for sure. I'm excited too, but I've been trying to avoid looking at it too closely ahead of time because I want to feel like (laughs) I can have a fresh experience when I do get to play it. So how did you feel about uh, Bloodborne when uh, Bloodborne came out last year? Did you, uh, you said you've played a a little bit at least of each game, uh, maybe not as much as Demon's Souls. Uh, Going from Demon's Souls' type uh, gameplay, uh, very similar obviously, but the combat's very different and the setting's very different. And you said that the narrative is really interesting in Bloodborne. How did you feel about Bloodborne? Yeah, I think what's compelling about Bloodborne, even within the context of the series, is, you know, they all obviously have a narrative of some sort, um, and or not of some sort, they all have it. Uh, But I guess I don't, I don't connect as much with like sort of medieval high fantasy stuff as much anymore. Like I did when I was younger, but I'm just not as interested in it lately. Okay, which is kind of the vibe I got from the other Souls games, Um, even though, like, what struck me about the other Souls games is just the character design, monster design is super cool. Um, cool. It's, like, so cool, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But with Bloodborne, it felt like they really took an aesthetic and a narrative context and, and injected it into the world in every layer. It's just such a consistent world, um, and it's... I don't know what's the word for that. Um, I get, I get what you mean. Like in Dark Souls, although it was medieval, each boss could have been various different things. Like you had Sif, who was like this giant wolf, and then you had like the gaping dragon, which is this incredibly disgusting thing. And then you have like yeah, all these different types. But in uh, Bloodborne, but it's all like knights in shining armor kind of stuff. Yeah, um, but in like Bloodborne, many of the bosses are. Um, they're all infected by this this thing that's happening. I don't want to spoil the game, man. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all they all are, are they're very similar, sort of in design, but they're all like nightmarish and very different. Yeah. Well, like, wait, and what's the Bloodborne like? Uh, the narrative, the world is based on. What? Gothic horror. Yeah, gothic horror. That's the term. <laughs> I like. Put my, I don't Th- know th- why, thank you, Emmett. Not, thank you. Thank you, Emmett. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so the gothic. So what? When I say that the Bloodborne narrative is interesting, I don't necessarily mean the plot, but the, the gothic world and the and the world yeah. narrative. Yeah, the 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 world building that sort of that narrative context um, supports, and how like all the costumes feel so consistent with that, yeah. and all the monsters feel so consistent with that, and the level design feels consistent with that. All the spaces feel really consistent with that. And just seeing how thorough they were with the details was really impressive to me. And I think they definitely did that with the other Souls games, but the gothic horror is something I didn't expect and it surprised me. And that's what got me really excited about uh, the narrative in that game. Fantastic. So obviously being on Besaid Island with Demon Souls, um, is there like a specific build or weapon that you're going to immediately jump to on your first playthrough on the island? Of Demon Souls? Yes. Oh gosh, I don't even know if I could remember the words anymore. I was a I played a mage when I played Demon Souls. Okay. Before, so I would probably try a different class, probably a more melee focused class next time because I never 
I did, I did that a little bit in Demon's Souls, but I always focused on my like magic build. Um, so I would probably just go through and try all the different classes and see, see how they all, how they all feel. Do a uh, depraved run, just naked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And definitely try speed running it. I think that would be really fun. Yes, absolutely. Some, some Demon Souls and Dark Souls runs are just, they blow my mind. So yeah. Uh, how people can be that good and how people can while playing those games find the time to explore without getting killed or getting <laughs> like mobbed by continual enemies and find out all these secrets to get through the game quicker amazes me immensely yeah yeah totally <laughs> okay nina so before i let you go and i thank you for spending the time with me today to talk about these games it's been absolutely an utter pleasure um, the last question I ask my guests usually is if there is one console you could take to the island, only one, um, and you could have the whole back catalog available because obviously consoles are very important and, you know, controllers and user interfaces and how well they work is good, but consoles are always built upon how strong their games lineup is. So the back catalog included what console would you choose to take to the island with you? I would choose the, I believe the PS2. Um, because the PS2, that was the console that I had when I really started to move beyond the games that like basically every kid in my generation was playing. Like, you know, not every kid, but uh, people in my town that I grew up around, like everyone played Mario, everyone played the Nintendo games. Okay. Like a lot of the, everyone had the Sega Genesis, you know, I had these things too. Um, although I, I definitely had a lot less games than a lot of my friends and there was a lot of borrowing <laughs> and trading going on. <laughs> but, you know, those are the games that like you talk to anyone in my generation, like there's a pretty high likelihood that they played that stuff. Yeah. Um, but when I started playing the PS2, I started to branch out a bit and got really into like, you know, I believe Final Fantasy X was a PS2 game, right? Yes. Yes. So I got, uh, that's when I discovered Final Fantasy X. Uh, that's when I discovered Xenosaga, which is another one of my favorite games. Okay. Um, and this, when I had a PS2, oh, Kingdom Hearts as well. That was when I really felt like I started to care about games in a way that I hadn't before beyond just like, this is what kids do. Like kids all have these Nintendos and stuff. Like I, I yeah. So more exploring into explore. Yeah. Yeah. So more exploring into video games that potentially had narratives and world building and these epic places that you could explore that were beyond uh, Hyrule or the Mushroom Kingdom and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think those games had that, like, you know, a lot of the games on the Nintendo, like Ocarina of Time is one of my favorite games, but I don't think I was thinking about that stuff until I started playing PS2 games. Okay. So that, that was when I opened my mind up to that sort of thing. Yeah. And that is important to me. And I would, you know, I, I would explore more older titles from that console for sure. Cause so many of them were really interesting that I did come across when I was younger and I'm sure there's a lot more there. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. The PlayStation two is yours to take with you as well as the eight games. So you can have <laughs> fun on your, the tropical Island of Besaid Island and uh, <laughs> just 
count the days away while getting better at Splatoon and Mario Maker and Rocket I'll League. I'll go play some Blitzball in real life. Oh, yeah. You can also go do, <laughs> go do that in Visayla Island. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so before you go, would you like to let people know where they can find you or find your stuff or what sure. they should be checking out? Especially yeah. maybe games that may be coming from your way? So... For my social media, which is like the best way to keep up with what I'm doing, I'm on Twitter at HentaiPhD, spelled H-E-N-T-A-I-P-H-D. Um, and there's a link to my website there, but my website is ninasays.so, N-I-N-A-S-A-Y-S dot S-O. I have a ton of like free web-based games, a lot of free Flash games on my site that you can check out. Um, so that's cool. And right now I'm a level designer at Fulbright working on Tacoma and Tacoma is, we have a cool trailer up at Tacoma-game.com. Uh, and Sybil, which I talked about a bunch earlier is the last game that I released with StarMade Games and that you can buy on Steam, Humble Bundle and Itch. Um, and that is the website where you can find all those links is SybilGame.com, which is spelled C-I-B-E-L-E game.com. Uh, and I, I'm, yeah, I'm just focusing on Tacoma work right now. So look forward to that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you are very busy and it is incredible to speak to you about these games that have inspired you. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you had fun. It was very fun. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Final Games. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at LiamBME and you can follow the show at Final Games Show. If you want to email me for any reason, uh, if you have any inquiries about the show, it's finalgamespodcast at gmail.com and you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and you can do all those lovely things like rate and review and subscribe and that kind of thing. Um, so thank you once again for listening. Thank you so much to Nina and I will see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>